fortunately, that sort of idea is falling to the wayside. Anaphylactic shock, it's certainly scary. Well, they don't work miraculously under any conditions. Wow, I've never seen a black per person climbing before. I've never seen a black person in the mountains. Welcome to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast with me, your host, Daryl Macias. Here, we get to talk to the movers and the shakers of wilderness medicine and adventurers alike, giving you insight into the latest science and techniques related to wilderness medicine. It's March 2022. What's new? Well, I'm still hiding out. Some of you know I'm on a sabbatical learning about the so-called metaverse and how it relates to mountain medicine. And I just returned from the Kumbu Climbing Center in Nepal in the Everest region. So I'll give you a little update on what our Sherpa mountain guys are up to after we discuss our journal's latest clinical practice guidelines on anaphylaxis. Then we'll discuss evidence behind the use of the so-called space blanket. Now, many of you will be at the WMS Winter Conference this year, and I might see some of you in the survival workshop in the virtual world. Sorry, not going to be there in person, but it's nice to be able to participate even when schedule conflicts arise. But let's now discuss the new anaphylaxis guidelines with Flavio and David, courtesy of Zoom, of course. I have the pleasure of discussing the new WMS clinical practice guidelines on anaphylaxis. And I have with me two of the authors, I have Drs. Flavio Gaudio and David Johnson. Would you gentlemen tell us a little bit about yourselves? And then I'm going to start with a case. Well, good morning, Daryl. It's great to be here. And uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm an emergency physician at uh, New York Presbyterian Wall Cornell Medical Center in New York City, where I led the Wilderness and Environmental Program for over a decade. We took uh, medical students out into the field and did some scenario-based teaching. I uh, am happy to be here. And uh, I'm David Johnson. I am now a retired emergency physician after about 37 years of practice in, uh, in the state of Maine and the medical director of Wilderness Medical Associates. Well, today we're going to discuss anaphylaxis. We'll discuss uh, some of the clinical practice guidelines that you authored with several other authors, but I want to start out with, maybe it's an improbable case. I don't know. Let's see what you think. But if, let's say a few of us faculty instructors, we're leading a group of wilderness medicine participants on a mountain bike ride. And this certainly happens during our rotations, during our diploma of mountain medicine teaching and things like that. And one of the people, the participants took a spill of some poison ivy. He continues the ride. He's uninjured. But within the next hour, he starts to develop urticaria, really itchy. It's on his arms, it's on his back, it's on his legs. And his airway is normal. He doesn't have any respiratory or cardiovascular signs or symptoms, no findings other than his skin. One of our instructors decides, hey, let's take out that epinephrine auto-injector because epinephrine is the treatment for anaphylaxis. And you know what? It could save this guy's life. Now, this new patient, this participant, he doesn't have any medical history. He doesn't have any known allergies, but he says, you know what? Ah, that thing is going to hurt. I don't want the epinephrine. So should we convince this guy, even force this guy to take this shot? Should we evacuate him? 
what would you all do on this case? Well, first, I don't think we should be forcing him to do anything that he doesn't want to. And okay. if we're going to do something, we ought to convince him uh, based <laughs> on doing a good evaluation and a little bit of science, considering that these are all medical people. But, you know, at the, at the beginning, this doesn't qualify uh, as anaphylaxis. It could evolve into anaphylaxis. But as we try to uh, define in the... Uh, in the guideline is that it requires uh, two systems or, or really serious involvement of the respiratory system or circulatory system, like shock or respiratory uh, distress failure from an upper airway obstruction or, or lower airway constriction. And, you know, maybe 20 years ago, the definition of anaphylaxis was all over the place. And I think it's slowly honing in so that most people who define it are coming pretty close to something like that. There, I think there was a time that you, uh, you had to have urticaria, you had to have respiratory distress, but I think we know better than that now. So this sounds like uh, an urticarial rash and there's little question that epinephrine would get rid of this, but it's certainly not necessary. Uh, you know, maybe an antihistamine or something for the symptoms might make some sense. And then and my, monitor this guy and see if he does develop signs of shock, GI symptoms, uh, respiratory symptoms, airway obstruction or lower constriction. I would add to David's excellent answer that the case you presented highlights the importance of not just training providers to understand the mechanics of the epinephrine injector or the violence syringe, but also on properly identifying anaphylaxis. So let's not just get, up, get caught up with giving meds, but we have to spend as much time on making the diagnosis in our training programs. So we have to differentiate between these things. And I know that there's these four types of hypersensitivity reactions that are mentioned in the clinical practice guidelines, which are really good. One of which we're talking about is more of a cell uh, mediated immunity type of reaction versus the one which we do want to talk about anaphylaxis, the IgE type of reaction. So there's a lot of, you know, what is anaphylaxis? And we did mention two organ systems at least. And how, well, what is anaphylaxis? What is an allergy? What is an anaphylactoid reaction? What is anaphylactic shock? So many people say, wow, I just don't know the difference. We talk about pathophysiology in the guidelines, and um, it's kind of a broad and extensive topic. We as physicians, we can talk about the hypersensitivity reactions, how type 1 involves IgE and mast cells, and it's very quick. There's a type 2 that involves IgG, and an example of that is a blood transfusion reaction. A type 3 involves antibody antigen complex uh, as in serum sickness. And type 4 is the poison ivy case where T cells and macrophages are involved. And that's more delayed. Uh, as you go from type 1 to type 4, the onset uh, takes a little longer. And we can talk about that. But I think in the field, the important aspect is the clinical aspect. And, and that's why we emphasize clinical criteria for a diagnosis. And whether it's an anaphylactoid reaction, which is a first time reaction to an antigen without definite prior exposure, at least that we know about, 
whether it's an anaphylactoid reaction or an anaphylaxis reaction, we have to focus on the clinical manifestation and not necessarily the pathophysiology in, in the field. You know, anaphylactic shock could be considered as severe under the spectrum uh, where the circulatory system is involved. Uh, in all types of anaphylaxis and severe anaphylactoid reactions, it's, it's a multi-system involvement, like David said. So 80% of cases uh, at least involve the skin and mucous membranes, but some do not. Um, there should be some other systems involved, for example, respiratory difficulty, cardiovascular problems, uh, persistent uh, GI symptoms, such as cramping, abdominal pain, nausea, or vomiting. So a couple of systems or severe involvement of the respiratory or cardiovascular system. And these reactions all involve inflammatory mediators, histamine, uh, cytokines, prostaglandins, and start and build up and, and spread throughout, throughout the body. There's also leakage on the level of uh, the capillaries and the blood vessels so that fluid uh, leaves the intravascular space and goes into the extravascular space, which can contribute to low blood pressure and circulatory problems, uh, leakage of fluid from the intravascular space or the intracellular space into the extracellular space in the lungs can lead to increased secretions and uh, difficulty breathing. So it's, it's a uh, broad, wide-ranging systemic reaction. So with regard to that, there is obviously a difference between anaphylaxis and anaphylactic shock. Would it be enough to initially just start out with an H1 and H2 blocker and steroids? What if I'm not sure about using IM epi? That's always kind of a sticking point with a lot of potential listeners here. Fortunately, that sort of idea is falling to the wayside. So, you know, the purpose of epinephrine, it does everything. Anaphylaxis can cause uh, lower airway constriction. Epinephrine is a uh, bronchodilator. Anaphylaxis can cause vascular dilation. Epinephrine is a, uh, a vascular constrictor. You know, it has alpha and beta properties. The other thing that's really important that I think that people who want to start out with antihistamines and corticosteroids is it stabilizes mast cells. And so the argument used to be that epinephrine's only use was to uh, take care of the symptoms to buy time for the antihistamine to work. But that's, that's faulty thinking because really antihistamines don't do anything for lower airway problems. They don't do anything for vascular problems. And in fact, antihistamines uh, are vascular dilators. You know, that's faulty thing. The other argument used to be that it doesn't last very long. Uh, and, and it may be that it's metabolized relatively quickly, but it's biological effect, its ability to uh, maintain those properties and stabilize the mast cell can last for a couple of hours. And, and so for all, all reasons, uh, it's good. And if all you had was epinephrine and sufficient amount of epinephrine, that would be enough. You wouldn't need the corticosteroids or antihistamines. You know, there, there's some debate about this. So if, you're, uh, if you live in Europe, if you live in Australasia, they put antihistamines, corticosteroids at the second or third level. Some places don't even mention them in their protocols. And I think part of the big driver of that is that they don't want people to say, I don't know, I feel uncomfortable about the shot. Let's try the other things and see what happens. 
You know, and again, one of the fallacies is antihistamines are very good at getting rid of urticaria. And that's a visual thing. That's what we see. But it doesn't do anything for the airway or the uh, cardiovascular system. So you give somebody an antihistamine and the rash starts getting better. And you say, ah, we're headed in the right direction. And in fact, we may not be headed in the right direction. So yeah, we, you know, emphasize, we, we emphasize in the guidelines that the once anaphylaxis is diagnosed, the first medical treatment, pharmacologic treatment, should be epinephrine. And the other treatments, such as antihistamines, corticosteroids, uh, inhaled beta agonists, they're supplementary treatments that should not delay the administration of epinephrine. And delays in the administration of uh, uh, intramuscular epinephrine in the field has repeatedly been associated with fatality in anaphylaxis. Epinephrine, or as our colleagues in Europe call it, adrenaline, mitigates the overall inflammatory response in anaphylaxis, stabilizes mast cells, other immune cells, and it reverses the vascular dilation and increased permeability, and it relieves the airway constriction. Okay, let's do a little unpacking here, a little review. First of all, the case presentation that I gave may have seemed a bit silly, but it illustrates that there are different types of so-called allergic reactions. In fact, these are not all allergic reactions. In fact, I demonstrated a type of reaction that's called a hypersensitivity reaction. The case that I gave, yes, it was delayed hypersensitivity. It occurs from contact with poison oak, poison ivy, or sumac, thanks to a chemical called urushiol. This ain't anaphylaxis, folks. The patient develops urticaria or dermatitis about one hour after contact with a poison ivy. Well, a little background. The body's immune system is normally in the business of protecting us from bacteria, viruses, and other foreign invaders that make us sick. But when your shial from poison ivy touches the skin, it causes this delayed hypersensitivity reaction in the cellular tissue, causing skin irritation resulting in dermatitis or maybe the urticaria that we talked about, the wheel and flare reaction to what would otherwise be a relatively harmless substance. Hay fever, this is another example of this type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. In the case of hay fever, the immune system overreacts to pollen or another plant-produced substance. Now, here's how that poison ivy response occurs. The urushiol from the poison ivy makes its way down through the skin where it is metabolized or broken down. Immune cells within body tissues called T lymphocytes or T cells recognize the urushiol as a foreign substance, an antigen. Take me to your leader. Then these T cells send out inflammatory signals called cytokines, which call in the monocytes, which are a type of white blood cells. Under the orders from these cytokines, these monocytes end up turning into macrophages, which gobble up and eat foreign substances. But in doing so, they also damage normal tissue, resulting in the skin inflammation occurring with poison ivy. The allergic reaction to poison ivy, again, it's delayed hypersensitivity, not the immediate hypersensitivity, not the type 1 reaction, not the anaphylaxis reaction that we are going to talk about. Because delayed hypersensitivity takes a long time, whereas an allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, the type 1 hypersensitivity, can occur almost immediately. We talked about antihistamines. Sure, they can help with the itching of the poison ivy. But corticosteroids are generally going to be the treatment of choice, but they don't work lickety-split. And you can wash off some of this urushiol if you get to it in time. The immediate hypersensitivity or the anaphylaxis happens when two or more body systems are involved. 
Skin or mucous membranes are what we usually think about 80 to 90% of the time in most cases, but this won't always happen. The airway slash pulmonary system can also be involved where you get airway swelling, bronchoconstriction, difficulty breathing. The cardiovascular system is another system that could demonstrate itself by hypotension or syncope. Or the last system could be the gastrointestinal system, abdominal cramping, vomiting, diarrhea. Two of these four systems or anaphylaxis can happen with bee stings, wasp stings, even ingestion with foods and a variety of other things. If somebody's on a blood pressure medication known as an ACE inhibitor, well, you could get something called angioedema, which is a different mechanism. Lip swelling occurs, but this is not true anaphylaxis in the sense of the word, and epinephrine is generally not going to reverse this issue. There are more complicated medications that may reverse this. However, they can both cause airway compromise. But note that airway swelling with anaphylaxis will involve the whole airway, posterior oropharynx, whereas in an ACE inhibitor, generally, it's going to involve anterior lip swelling only, maybe tongue swelling. If there is only a diffuse urticarial rash without any involvement of other body systems, this is not anaphylaxis. It's a localized allergic reaction. Sure, you could treat this localized allergic reaction with antihistamines, and it could alleviate the symptoms. If you have anaphylaxis, well, you might see an alleviation of the urticaria and feel good about yourself saying, I've treated the issue. But if there is an underlying second organ involvement involved, antihistamines aren't going to work, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Remember, what we talk about is degranulation of mast cells. Now, what are mast cells? They are immune cells in connective tissues that are very important in the immune system response. Now, mast cells release chemical mediators such as histamine, and so we use antihistamines that cause vascular leakage. But mast cells are not the complete package with regard to anaphylaxis. Remember that previous exposure to an allergen can make the body manufacture an antibody called IgE, if you learn that. That's the type 1 hypersensitivity response. If you get a patient exposed the second time to some kind of antigen that made this IgE antibody, this antibody will cause degranulation of mast cells. So that is part of the equation. But some substances, like certain drugs, may not even have required a previous exposure. As such, a drug can directly degranulate a mast cell, which could result in anaphylaxis. Now, this has previously been termed an anaphylactoid reaction, where you don't need IgE, but it really doesn't matter. Anaphylactoid, or so-called anaphylactoid reactions, and anaphylaxis reactions look the same clinically. So clinical recognition of anaphylaxis and the treatment of anaphylaxis is what you want to do. Antihistamines, sure. Again, they stabilize those mast cells and that histamine response. Anaphylaxis, well, you have other things going on. And antihistamines won't reverse that bronchoconstriction. They won't reverse the airway swelling. It won't reverse the vasodilatation causing hypotension. In fact, it is possible, according to David, that the antihistamine could paradoxically worsen that hypotension. So that's why you've got to treat real anaphylaxis with epinephrine not the antihistamines. Antihistamines are not your first-line treatment. Steroids are not your first-line treatment, as Flavio will discuss. These could take hours to take effect. Boy, I tell you what, I've been to, uh, I've been to three goat neuterins and a world's fair. I ain't never heard nothing like this. <laughs> you know, and I wonder, just the IM epinephrine in and of itself would take care of the bronchoconstriction since 
it has the alpha and beta one and beta two properties. And I think in the old days when I was maybe an intern, they had something called susferin or something like that, which was this long acting epinephrine, which isn't used anymore, but it kind of came to my mind as I was reading the article. And as I was listening to a different podcast where they talk about, well, they should give albuterol, but I would think epinephrine would certainly take care of that. And hopefully there would be albuterol in somebody's med kit in certain situations, like if you're in a high altitude situation, but it doesn't sound like I would maybe based on your recommendations, just depend on that albuterol. It's really the epinephrine that we have to give and we have to give it unashamedly. Yeah. Well, remember, I mean, if it, it's sort of like giving the antihistamine for a rash, you can give the albuterol that will help the bronchoconstriction, but it doesn't get to the mast cells. And so it's not going to stabilize the mast cells. And it's also not going to do anything on, on, uh, vascular dilation. So there's certainly nothing wrong with doing that. And particularly in somebody maybe who has a history of asthma, who's having uh, an anaphylactic reaction, it may be really helpful, but it's not going to get to the, to the pathophysiology. So here's a little background. There was an older, longer acting epinephrine formulation called susferin, which was mainly used for asthma. And I haven't seen this susferin used or seen in our hospital formulary for many years. So I don't even know whether it's still marketed. It was used mainly for asthma exacerbation. Similarly, terbutaline was also used for severe asthma as a subcutaneous injection. Terbutaline affects the beta-2 receptors responsible for bronchodilation to reverse the bronchoconstriction of asthma. Now, anaphylaxis also can cause bronchoconstriction. Asthma is not in and of itself anaphylaxis. It could be a symptom of anaphylaxis, but it isn't the whole tamale. And so, pure beta-2 agonist, such as terbutaline or even inhaled albuterol, isn't going to reverse anaphylaxis. Albuterol won't do anything for the vasodilatation, which is affected by what we call an alpha receptor. Albuterol doesn't stabilize mast cells either. Epinephrine takes care of all these issues, the alpha and beta receptor issues, and stabilizes those mast cells to stop that nasty histamine release. So sure, if you want to add albuterol to epinephrine, go for it. But for anaphylaxis, IMEPI comes before the albuterol inhaler and certainly before antihistamines or steroids. Now, there's also forms of inhaled epinephrine that we'll touch on a little later. Some are commonly used for croup. Let me emphasize this, friends. Inhaled epi doesn't reverse anaphylaxis and is not a substitute for injected IM epinephrine, which is the first-line treatment for anaphylaxis. Well, let me jump into the weeds, or in this case, the poison ivy a little bit. So you feel good about this, let's discuss anaphylactic shock. So if I have somebody with anaphylactic shock, hypotensive, maybe they were, you know, they had syncope or something like that, there's just some manifestations clinically that this person doesn't just have anaphylaxis, but anaphylactic shock would... I am epinephrine be enough to potentially mitigate that? Would it be necessary to use multiple doses? Would one, and I say this tongue in cheek, would I am epinephrine need to be given intravenously? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Or are there some other things that I could do so that I would potentially avoid even thinking about intravenous epinephrine? Well, uh, anaphylactic shock is certainly scary. Uh, in anaphylaxis, in, in severe cases, up to one-third of the intravascular fluid may extravasate within minutes of allergen exposure. 
uh, leading to decreased venous return and cardiovascular collapse. You know, that being said, IV epinephrine has its own possible drawbacks, right? There's no contraindication to giving epinephrine and anaphylaxing and giving as many doses as you need. But you have to keep in mind that in field conditions, we're talking about providers with different, different levels of training, different experience, different expertise, and different equipment. Uh, it's one thing uh, when you have cardiac monitors, full IV access, and all the equipment of an emergency department or a medical center at your disposal, and you could give IV epinephrine. But in the field, I think our first go-to should be IM epinephrine. And you can repeat it every 5 to 15 minutes until you have your uh, needed effect, even in cases of uh, hypotension. Uh, if you have IV access in the field, you can start fluids. Of course, keep the patient in a supine position uh, unless the uh, respiratory component is predominant and the patient prefers to sit up to breathe a little bit better. But I think starting uh, with um, IM epinephrine and uh, giving as many doses as needed is a good start. There are case reports of Improper dosage when IV is given epinephrine, uh, IV epinephrine is sometimes been given too quickly, and it needs really a, a different level of expertise. And we mention it in the guideline just as a matter of completeness. You know, you have to remember that wilderness medicine, wilderness is not wilderness. So this could be a group of people in a really remote area on a personal trip days from help, or this could be a, uh, an organized rescue effort that is going into a remote area well-equipped. And so what you take and what you do, I think this is what Flavio is, is, is suggesting here, is really a function of, of what's the mission, who's involved, and what you're actually able to, uh, to bring with you. Because you can start IVs in wilderness setting. There's no question about it. Uh, it's easier in some settings than others. I've certainly seen hypotension anaphylactic shock reverse itself with IM epinephrine. We had the benefit of IV fluids and we threw everything, uh, medically speaking, at the patient. Uh, first the epinephrine, IV fluids, we did albuterol, we did uh, antihistamines, we did steroids, and luckily the person came around. If you were to use IV epinephrine, I think it's you know super important to realize that the doses are very different, of course, and the ampules are different. The intramuscular is uh, 0.3 milligrams to 0.5 milligrams, but with you doing it IV... Typically, you'll take one milligram of epinephrine and dilute it in 10 cc's of normal saline and give boluses, half a cc to one cc at a time. Preferably under careful hemodynamic monitoring and a, and a cardiac monitor. You know, most cases of anaphylaxis resolve with one dose of epinephrine. If you look at ED studies, uh, most cases just need one. About 8 to 12% of ED and adult pediatric anaphylaxis patients have required two or more doses. In inner cities, that might be a little higher percentage, maybe up to 20% in pediatric inner city EDs for the prevalence of al allergies and asthma is high, but only 1% of anaphylaxis cases is considered refractory that does not respond to uh, three doses of IM epinephrine. So I think in the vast majority of cases that we'll encounter in the field, what we have uh, in our kit will be enough. Well, let's, let's say that this 20-year-old this 
person or whatever that fell in the poison ivy. Well, let's say it wasn't poison ivy. He fell into a hive of wasps or something like that. And he improves after one dose of IM epinephrine. So we'll just make this a uh, good old uh, anaphylactic reaction. And if he got better, would he need evacuation? Would you watch him for six hours? When would we want to evacuate an individual? Besides anaphylactic shock, that would kind of be obvious, but for somebody like them. You know, there's ideal and real. And, and so under ideal circumstances, if you're pulling out epinephrine and you're giving an injection, I think most people, as long as the evacuation wasn't somehow dangerous, you know, the conditions lent itself to a, a reasonable and safe evacuation, I think most people would say, if you give the shot, they need to come out. And then there are confounding factors. You know, I think what you're alluding to here is the concern about a biphasic reaction, uh, a recurrent reaction sometime after uh, a successful treatment, as opposed to an incomplete reaction where you gave the med and the symptoms didn't go away completely. You know, and there are, are risk factors. Uh, we know that that a biphasic reaction could occur as much as 24 hours after the resolution of symptoms, but most of them resolve themselves in a relatively short time, probably within about four to six hours. There are people who are at risk. So somebody who had a delayed onset, somebody who had a delay in administration of the epinephrine, somebody who required more than one injection of epinephrine, somebody who had multiple or more organs involved. Those would all be reasons to say, boy, I, I don't know, I, we need to get out of here, even if it's gonna be a little bit risky. And I think the other is, uh, do we have enough medication? Could we treat this if it happens again? So those, I mean, at least for me, they would be the, uh, the biggest concerns. And then people obviously with comorbidity, people who had really bad reactions in the past, although, uh, a prior reaction is not a good prediction of, uh, of uh, what's going to happen in the future. So if you look at the Knowles and OB data that we have in the guideline, there were people who had an anaphylactic reaction. It was their very first. I mean, there's got to be a first sometime, but a, a sizable percent, I don't remember what, but in the 20% range, uh, it was their very first reaction. So and, and if I have a reaction today, there's no guarantee that I'm going to have the same reaction exposed to the same antigen a year from now. So we don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, our guidelines have uh, already generated some discussion. And uh, uh, for instance, the World Extreme Medicine Organization did a podcast on our guidelines, and they raised some very good points. And one of their thoughts was, could we give a more definitive action plan for evacuation? Could we give a clear algorithm? And uh, I, I think it's difficult. I think for some of the reasons that David mentioned, both involving the circumstances, the, the weather, the topography, and also the skill and the level of training of the provider in the field. We tried to give the general information and then let that information guide the policies of uh, organizations or uh, group leaders. So we know that the biphasic reaction occurs about four to six percent of the time, although recent ED studies suggest that that number may even be coming down. 
we know some of the risk factors and David mentioned uh, some of them. And one more I would add is an unknown antigen. If we don't know what caused the anaphylactic reaction, that's a bit of a risk factor for a biphasic reaction. But uh, evacuation, uh, there's just, it's, it's a multifactorial decision. I can give you a couple examples, right? So if somebody had an anaphylactic reaction and was given IMF and resolved quickly, but it was nighttime, and uh, you're on a mountaintop and uh, the evacuation is going to be very dangerous and the group decides as a whole to wait until the next morning and then reassess. Well, if, if you have an expedition physician and you had an eight-hour observation period and the person resolved, uh, his anaphylaxis resolved promptly and you have additional epinephrine and equipment on board, well, after eight hours, the chance of a biphasic reaction goes down to about 2%. So that group might decide to stay in place, especially if the weather hasn't entirely gotten better. On the other hand, if you've used up all your epinephrine, it was a severe reaction and the weather started to improve, well, the calculus is going to be very different and there's going to be more of a push to get that person evacuated. So it's not a one, one size fits all algorithm. And it's very complex. It depends on weather, topography, geography, the patient, the provider. So we tried to give the general tools and then help that guide decision-making in the field. What is interesting to note is that um, the recommendations, which we talk about in the manuscript by the uh, American Academy of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology, say that if the presentation is not severe and responds promptly to treatment, then your observation period could be as short as one hour uh, in a medical center. And the, the more severe the initial presentation was, then the longer you're going to have to observe, you know, six to eight hours for um, respiratory compromise and maybe 12 to 24 hours for patient with hypotension. And although those are recommendations for medical centers and observation, that can also help guide uh, evacuation uh, decisions. If you're stuck in the field and 12 hours have passed, and the reaction was a mild one, well, there may not be as much of an impetus to take the risk of evacuation at that point. We do a course for blue water sailors. And, and you know, if you're halfway between Panama and the Marquesas, nobody's coming and you're not getting <laughs> off that boat. So, you know, you've got to be ready. Uh, and, and the people who take it, you know, they're non-medical professionals and, and, and you know, there's a risk. And you either got to accept it or not and be yeah. prepared. Yeah, you just have to be prepared. You can't really have a set algorithm. This is what we do all the time because then guidelines become a protocol and yep. there's a lot of issues with protocols, even medical legally. Well, would you recommend, would steroids help with this biphasic reaction? Is there any evidence that we should be using steroids? Um, I think the evidence is inconsistent. Some studies have shown help with a biphasic reaction and some have not. The approach we took in the guidelines is that we think, even though the evidence is not conclusive, the potential for benefit paired with a very low side effect profile for a short course of oral steroids made us decide to give it the recommendation that uh, I think we gave it a 1C recommendation, that it was a, a strong recommendation with weak evidence. And we picked that because we felt that the potential benefit outweighed the risk, especially if your population is young, ha active, uh, and fit, as oftentimes it is in, in the wilderness. 
do you feel that over the years there's been a significant rise in anaphylaxis? And is there any reason why this would be happening just in general? In our manuscript, we looked at the field records and the injury and illness databases of the National Outdoor Leadership School and Outward Bound USA, two excellent organizations. And we had 15 years of data. We had over 2 million participant days for both NOLS and OB. And what we found was that anaphylaxis, uh, the incidence increased over 15 years uh, from, it increased 12 fold from about, uh, for the NOLS database, about two cases in the first 10, 15 years of data, and then up to 24 cases uh, of anaphylaxis among students in the second 15 year database. And so their databases are every 15 years, they have these injury and illness databases. So we looked at the, the most recent one, which was 2005 to 2019, and then the prior one, 1984 to 2004. So we saw a 12-fold increase in anaphylaxis, and no one knows for sure, but we, we have three theories, and probably all are contributing to some extent. One is that the actual incidence of anaphylaxis is increasing. Uh, in the population. And the evidence for that is that the total number of allergic reactions also increase, not the anaphylactic reactions, but just general allergy reactions also increased about threefold uh, during that time. And this parallels, uh, we think, the rise in, uh, in uh, allergy and food allergy in particular in the general U.S. population. The CDC estimates that food allergy in children has uh, have increased by over 50 percent over 15 years. So we think one of the reasons we're seeing more anaphylaxis is that the actual incidence of allergy and anaphylaxis is rising. The second reason is we think instructors are more are diagnosing it more readily. I think there's a lot of training that emphasizes recognizing allergy and anaphylaxis. There's increased public awareness of food allergies in general. And I think that maybe has uh, honed their eyes a little bit to make the diagnosis uh, more readily. And third, we think compared to decades ago where uh, having a history of anaphylaxis precluded participation in uh, wilderness courses and remote expeditions, we think that more parents and more physicians are actually allowing participation in, uh, in young people who've had a history of anaphylaxis. We think that in part is fueled by uh, the increased awareness of anaphylaxis, by the increased availability of epinephrine in the field, and by the emphasis on anaphylaxis care plans that both schools and organizations have to have in place. So we think all these three reasons, increased incidence, increased recognition, and maybe a slight selection bias of students who used to have anaphylaxis, who, who, who have a history of anaphylaxis, who wouldn't participate in the past now feel more comfortable participating. We think these three things are all contributing. Again, yeah. the overall incidence is low. It affects about one to one to three NOLs and OB uh, participants, one to three out of a thousand. So it is low, but you have to be prepared for it because they have a given their large school sizes, they have a few two to three cases about on, on, on average every year. Right. And I think we have to be cognizant of maybe younger learners, you know, children that are going out to a camp or something like that, that definitely has to be addressed, especially with regard to the peanut allergies, peanut butter and things like that. So those are salient points. Well, let's say I'm reorganizing my medical kit. I'm one of these people that's responsible for 
a group of individuals like what we're talking about. And I've been doing busy summer. I've had a busy summer. I've been doing desert tours because uh, half of New Mexico is a desert. And I'm looking at my glove compartment because I got another trip coming up. And yep, there's that EpiPen that I was looking for. But I look at it, it has a slightly brownish tinge. The vial states that I have an extra year before it expires. I'm a little bit suspicious about the discoloration, but hey, you know what? The FDA says it's good, so it must be good. Besides, the prices of auto injectors are kind of astronomical over the past few years. Would you keep that EpiPen or would you throw it out? I'd toss it, you know, in the ideal world. Uh, it's interesting that one of the studies that we uh, uh, referenced looked at expired EpiPens in two different clinics, one in Florida, I think the other was in California. And what they did is they had their clients bring in expired EpiPens and then they, they tested them for potency. And they, they found that even the discolored ones, if they were less than 24 months, that they had better than 90% potency. Now, I, I think that the, the thing about epinephrine is that it's not dangerous if, the, you know, let's talk about expiration dates first. It's not dangerous if it's clear, if it's, if it's expired, except for the fact that it may not be as potent as it ought to be. But it's not like tetracycline used to be. We take tetracycline, if it was expired, you know, you could have a, a, a toxic renal reaction to it. As far as the color, I don't know the answer to that. If I saw that it was discolored, my default would be to get something more. I, I would get rid of it and get a new one. But I couldn't tell you with a straight face that it was somehow not going to work or somehow be dangerous. And I would get ampules or vials and get rid of the auto injectors. Is that for a cost uh, reason, uh, David? Or Yep. For a cost reason, okay. Yeah, cost and, and multiple doses. And you can use the multiple doses when you take apart some of these auto injectors as well. It's, yeah. you know, n some people may not necessarily favor that because, you know, you could get one of those uh, small springs uh, shot in your eye or something. I mean, we've taken them apart and whatnot, but it is interesting to, to note that you can have several more doses available, except they're not available unless you do this MacGyver type of routine. So, And probably you ought to try it at home. <laughs> the first time yeah. you do it probably shouldn't be in the field. Don't and we have a it. reference to those as well. Right. We refer those uh, in, the, uh, in the guidelines. So uh, completeness. It, it should be, it, you know, it should be noted that some of these discussions were driven by what would happen if in austere or disaster conditions. And so those are not the same recommendations for day, to, day in and day out in, in kind of normal circumstances. So... Uh, it's one thing if you're the U.S. military, you're in the field and there's a manufacturing shortage and you say, OK, it's OK to use those uh, EpiPens for another six months because we don't have enough to replace them and that supports your mission. It, it's another thing if you are um, comfortably planning out your next trip a year from now. So, uh, you know, you're expected to, to follow the recommendations and respect the expiration date. So different circumstances may lead to, uh, you know, different decisions. That's a recurrent theme here. <laughs> it could very well be recurrent. So I think it's always good to 
be prepared. Are there any other uh, last comments you might want to mention with regard to the clinical practice guidelines or anything else related to anaphylaxis or life in general? <laughs> Training is important, you know, and, and, and I think one of the impacts, how we got into this to begin with was to talk about uh, in 2008 or whatever it was, was the use of epinephrine by lay practitioners in the field. And, you know, we believe then and we believe now that lay providers can safely use epinephrine in the field for anaphylaxis. And I think Outward Bound and uh, Knowles have demonstrated this fairly uh, clearly. So, but it's, it's always predicated on good training and repeat training. Yes, like, like David said, you know, in tooth, uh, we had a, a conference in 2008, but I think in 2010, we published and updated in 2014 uh, recommendations uh, on the use of epinephrine by non-medical providers in the field. And that was, that was kind of pioneering there for the WMS to take that stand uh, back then. These guidelines are an expansion uh, beyond just epinephrine to a general field consideration of the treatment of anaphylaxis. And they, they took two years to make. We, uh, we read uh, articles, we looked at the best studies, we had discussions among ourselves, we wrote and rewrote and submitted, and we had to rewrite and re-edit. So it was a comprehensive effort. We think it's, um, there's very interesting information there from the physiology of anaphylaxis to many field considerations and, many, and even legal considerations, but it's a first time effort. And so we welcome constructive feedback and we look forward to making such guidelines even better in the future. And speaking of the future, one thing on the list that we're looking for is there is a expedited review to uh, at the level of the FDA to intranasal formulations of epinephrine that in early trials seem to be um, uh, as effective as intramuscular epinephrine and also undergoing experimental trial is uh, uh, sublingual forms of uh, epinephrine. So the future may hold some new options beyond the needle for uh, epinephrine delivery in the field. Uh, until then, though, don't go grab your meter dose inhaler of epinephrine because yeah. if you read in the guidelines, that doesn't work too well. So wait yeah. for the, uh, the new products to come out. Well, thank you very much for your time. This has been a stimulating discussion, I feel. And it's great just to have these guidelines out. I mean, they're so important because one of the things I uh, tell my learners is that if you had to carry one drug, it would have to be epinephrine because obviously the problem would be death if you didn't treat anaphylaxis and airway compromise is a terrible thing. So it's always a good thing to have some sort of a epinephrine device on you at all times, wherever you're going. So I appreciate your time here. It's been our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yep. You're welcome. And, Thank uh, you. And thanks to the other co-authors who couldn't make it today, but who gave uh, a lot of effort uh, to making uh, these guidelines a reality. Here's some closing comments to recap. What's interesting is that epi can be safely administered by non-medical professionals. Epinephrine doesn't need to be given only by auto-injectors or a fixed-dose pre-filled syringe. You can also draw up amps of epinephrine doses, and it doesn't need to be self-administered by the patient only. Yes, there are ampules of epinephrine that are available that can be safely drawn up, provided there is adequate training, of course. The dose of intramuscular epinephrine is 0.3 to 0.5. A lot of authorities recommend 0.5 milligrams of a 1 to 1,000 concentration. If you're a kid less than 30 kilograms, then it's 
0.15 milligrams per kilogram intramuscularly. Subcutaneous dosing is not reliable. It's important to note that epinephrine dosage forms are not the same when we use it for anaphylaxis as those in the so-called crash cart formulation or doses of epi, which are usually 10 milliliters of epinephrine dosed to 1 to 10,000 concentration for cardiac arrest. There's some who might give suggestions, and you can find this on the web, on how to formulate an IV dose out of an IM dose for anaphylactic shock, the so-called dirty epi drip. But this is going to be a hot mess. It's going to be impractical in an austere environment. So we don't recommend this. The IM epi dose can be repeated every 5 to 15 minutes. So repeat it every 5 to 15 minutes until it's resolved. But have a low sensitivity for evacuation, as we have discussed. Earlier epi or more rapid epi administration means less risk of a biphasic reaction. Currently, there appears to be more participation in outdoor activities by those with allergic and anaphylaxis histories. And there's an increased awareness of the diagnosis and training or caring for those with anaphylaxis, as well as an increased availability of epinephrine. So IM Epi should be part of your medical kit as a medical professional. Make sure that the Epi is not expired, especially if you have time to renew the drug before an outing. Ampules are easier to multi-dose than auto-injectors. And perhaps in the future, there's going to be a sublingual or nasal formulation of Epi, but no to inhaled Epi right now. In our discussion, we didn't cover exercise-induced anaphylaxis, which is very, very interesting. But in short, please read the guidelines for more excellent information. And thank you again to our authors who were available for the call. In a lot of survival and wilderness first aid type of courses, one of the essentials to carry besides a knife or scissors and some way to start a fire, for instance, is the good old space blanket. Do you have one in your survival or medical kit? These things are compact, and many of the teachers that I've heard previously swear by them. A lot of ultramarathon races, they'll cover contestants, participants with these very thin, or should I say ultra-thin reflective foils. Now, I routinely see EMS services bring in a patient covered in one of these, usually in addition with other types of blankets. But if these types of foils are that good, well, why bother to carry anything more for covering? Don't you have all the essential properties, OU ultra-thin reflective foil? You're preventing heat loss when you wear one of these things. I'm just going to take this out of the bag because heat generated by the patient doesn't escape. And if it's a sunny day, you'll be like a baked potato. Mm -mm. It'll be a cold day, but out with the sun, the sun will allow you with this foil to get heated up inside as if it were like an oven. And of course, it could help guard against any heat loss from wind and convection. And I want to know how many of you listeners really routinely carry one of these. Have you noticed any good outcomes when you've used the so-called space blanket? Well, tell you what, with me is our good friend Ken Zaffron, who's one of the authors of a journal paper reviewing the use of pre-hospital use of ultra-thin reflective foils. So, Ken, you've been prolific in wilderness medicine, and you've seen some advances in wilderness medicine. So, my question to you is, why are space blankets so effective, and should we carry more than one in our medical kit? And since these space blankets have been used for over 50 years, surely there must be a good amount of literature to support their use. Well, 
can't get this back in. Thanks for that question, Daryl. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, there is actually a little bit of literature, but I'll tell you a little bit about our paper first. My uh, Polish colleagues who live and breathe hypothermia got the idea for this paper. And uh, they uh, were kind enough to include uh, our Swiss friend, Mathieu Pasquier and, and me on the, the paper to uh, give them a little uh, a foreign uh, influence and uh, maybe a slightly different point of view than what they might've had initially. And so we had a lot of fun writing this paper too. It was, uh, we found seven field studies and four mannequin studies. So there's not a lot of data, but I'm gonna give you some field data with an N of one, me. So on the uh, Nepal gym course a few years ago, we had a, a simulation, basically a, a problem that you know the, the students are trekking along and they come across, in this case, the victim was me. And I was supposed to be pretending that I was hypothermic. It was a cold, windy day uh, on the way to Manang, about 12,000 feet. And we kind of got set up late so that the students were already arriving. So I didn't have a chance to put on a, a down jacket. I go, I'll be fine. I'll just be lying here. They'll come over. They'll figure out I'm cold. And they'll cover me up with a nice down jacket. And then I won't be cold. So that was great. Uh, we had two teams, you know, two sessions. They break in half and half do the each problem and then switch. And so the first team covered me up with a nice down jacket. I, oh, this is great, you know. So so then the second team comes and there wasn't a lot of time between times, but I figured the second team is going to cover me up with a down jacket. No, they didn't. They covered me up with one of these space blankets, and it actually felt colder when they put the space blanket on me. So every about 15 seconds, I'd go, I'm really cold. And, I mean, I was giving them the answer to the, the, uh, the problem. And, and they, they, like, they didn't do anything. It, it, this, you know, they were, <laughs> I don't know what they, why they thought I was telling them. I, I must've told them 30 times that I, at least that I was cold. Cause I was, I, was, I, I wasn't hypothermic, obviously. But I, but I really wish they had put something warm on me instead of that stupid space blanket. <laughs> So anyway, we, uh, they're not really that great. They they are good. And if you read the paper, you know you'll you'll hear they claim to be ninety percent effective, cut ninety percent of the heat loss, and that's that's true under certain circumstances that almost never happen. They're pretty good at reflecting heat back to your body if they're put on right, or they might be good at reflecting heat from the sun, and they might make it take longer for you to warm up in the sun, but they. They, that's basically how they they work. They reflect heat. They, they have a very low uh, absorption rate of the heat. They basically reflect. Right. But in practice, it doesn't make much of a difference at 12,000 feet in Manang, Nepal. No? Yeah. It doesn't really cut the wind that much. When it's windy, you're losing heat from the space blanket because it's warmer. The outside, the space blanket is warmer than the air. And the wind is, you're losing heat by convection. So... So it doesn't have much insulation. That's the bottom line. You put it in a pretty good perspective, and it sounds like, well, they'll make these space blankets out of some sort of a polyethylene fabric that's about 15 micrometers in thickness, and then they aluminize this fabric under a vacuum, and supposedly these blankets will end up working great. But really, do you think these blankets work any better than, say, a plastic bag? Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> no. That's, that's actually been, been studied. Uh, Bubble wrap's pretty popular in some places to wrap people in. Bubble wrap's actually a little better than the, those those foils. 
then it seems like some advertisers have had claims that these space blankets could decrease heat loss by up to 90%. Yet it seems that this could be somewhat misleading and that the most important factor affecting how well the foil works is the method of application. So what seems to be the best way or worst way to use an ultra-thin reflective foil, what do you think? And how do these things work so miraculously? Well, they don't work miraculously under any conditions, but uh, it has to be perfectly still, no convective heat loss. And you have to be losing most of your heat by radiation rather than conduction. So if you put it on over insulation, it can help under certain circumstances. But, but basically, it cuts down the radiation. And remember, radiation can be between any two objects that can actually sort of see each other. They, there's no, doesn't need to be a medium. That's why when you go out in the sun, you start to feel warm because the sun is radiating. And that's why when you sleep under the stars rather than in a tent, you're exposed either to the inside of the tent, which is cold, or you're exposed to space, which is a lot colder. And you lose heat much faster if you're exposed to space, but you get a much better view of the stars if it's a clear night out of the tent. These are good points, and the paper mentions a useful concept called the CLO, and that a properly placed ultra-thin reflective foil could potentially increase the body's temperature from 1 to 3 CLO. Now, this is C-L-O, a measure of heat retention or insulation. I think zero clothes is applicable for a person who's outside without any clothes on. Now, it's interesting why they name this unit CLO like clothes. So, it sounds like one CLO would be for a person wearing a dry, not a wet three-piece suit, and light underclothes, who's comfortable at rest if the ambient air temperature is at, say, 21 degrees Celsius, give or take whatever humidity there is, and hopefully with minimal wind. And am I understanding this definition of CLO correctly? And if used properly, does an ultra-thin reflective foil truly give warmth, just like a three-piece suit in a minimally wind windy environment? And what is a guy with a three-piece suit even doing out in the wilderness, unless you're climbing Everest like Mallory and Irvine? Well, I, I was wondering about the three-piece suit uh, myself. And uh, now one of the things that is popular in Alaska is you fly out to a glacier somewhere and you get married. My nephew did that, and he was in a three-piece suit out on a, a glacier. His bride was out there in a you know the usual bridal thing. And she was getting pretty cool. And she's, she's, it was, uh, and he wasn't get, getting as cool. And of course, I got married outdoors in a three piece suit on a cold, windy day, but it was a, it was a wool suit. So I wasn't getting cold. Yeah. So what's, what's a clove? So it, it, I'm sure it comes from clothing. I'm not an expert on the etymology of the word clove, but it's not a really a measure of temperature. It's a measure of insulation. I, I think we mentioned this in the article. It, it's like a, a centimeter of thickness, but, you know, of course, the, what, what insulates you with clothing is the trapped air. That's why down jacket is so nice and warm because it traps air in the compartments. And so you're really getting the insulation from the air. I don't know if a three-piece suit is one clothes or two clothes. Probably matters if it's like a light cotton three-piece suit or if it's a, um, a, a nice wool one. But anyway, it's, the, more, the more you put on, the more clothes equivalents you have. And... I think you're right. One clove, you know, makes it keeps you comfortable at a, a nice kind of room temperature. 
uh, the thermal neutral temperature of, of humans in in air without wind is you know, said to be about 82 degrees Fahrenheit. I think most of our listeners are going to be more comfortable with Fahrenheit anyway, which is about 28 degrees C. And sure, we could add down layers over our clothes and be a lot warmer. But the article also discusses something very interesting. That is, if you perspire sweat, well, wearing such a getup or an outfit ultimately covered by a space blanket, well, it's possible to actually become colder. Did I understand this right? Well, what, what happens is if your clothes are wet or you're sweating a lot, there's moisture inside it because it's colder it can actually condense on the inside and then it becomes less effective at uh, reflecting radiation so basically if you think about going in your bathroom and taking a hot shower when it's cold out and the window gets fogged up that's can, what can happen to the, the reflective foil is, is it gets can get moisture condensed on the inside of it and if it's very cold out that'll, that'll condense as ice and of course that will block the reflective properties make it less, less effective. Well, the article mentions gold cold. Does it matter really if the gold side faces outside and the silver side faces the patient? Well, we mentioned gold to cold, but the, neither side is, is uh, very different. They're, they're both very reflective. And so even though the silver side, which is usually the other side silver, or there could be other colors in different applications, but the, the silver side might uh, absorb like three times the amount, up to three times the amount that the gold does, but they're both way over 90, high 90s, you know, like 99% reflective. We're talking about like 0.01 to 0.02, 0.04 different, you know, in terms of the absorption. So it's so little, doesn't really matter which side you put out. Well, it seems like a lot of folks believe that ultra-thin reflective foils really matter, but based on what we've discussed so far, should we really not be using these space blankets? Do they contribute much in terms of being able to effectively rewarm somebody? Well, you know, people swear by those things. Uh, they're not they're not perfect. Some people swear at them because they can't get them back in the, the pouch once they <laughs> take them out. I don't know anybody like that, Daryl. But, uh, but also, they, they, you know, they're not that... Uh, indestructible something sharp goes goes right through them so don't ask but they do have a very high tensile strength you know they might help a little bit uh, they're pretty light i'm not sure that that it's terrible to carry them around and then yeah there was an article in wilderness and environmental medicine not that long ago some europeans uh marcus isser uh, was the lead author and it says high tensile strength increases multifunctional use of survival blankets in wilderness emergencies and so what can you do with a survival blanket? Well, they think you can use them as a pelvic binder. I think they mentioned that. Oh, huh. And a tourniquet. So that they looked at the, uh, the breaking strength of these and it was high enough that it could function as if, if applied properly as a tourniquet or as a, a pelvic binder. So the pelvic binder actually might be a pretty good use. You probably should have a tourniquet, an actual tourniquet in your kit. But if you don't, uh, you could use this. So those are two uses. I've seen other people talk about using them as a, a sling, like an arm sling. It's like the towel in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know. If yeah. You know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the oh, Galaxy. Yeah. You know, the towel has lots of uses. And in a pinch, if you have to, you can actually dry yourself off with it. So, <laughs> so yeah, these, these things could have a lot of uses and, and they don't weigh much. So I wouldn't necessarily take it out of your, your first aid kit but they're they're not as massively useful as uh, 
the advertisers want you to think. This is interesting. And so do you have any last comments to our discussion to add? No, I just uh, encourage people to take a look at it and, and uh, learn something about ultra-thin reflective foils. And I think the main take-home point is don't use them as a substitute for insulation. Yeah, that's a good point. And if any of you listening want to get into the deep physics of ultra-thin reflective foils, read the article. And Ken, hey, thanks a lot as always for getting together with us and explaining what you all found. And I hope to see you outside soon. Well, thanks for having me, Daryl. It's uh, been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, hope we meet again in person sooner rather than later. Do I have a little variety? Let's do an update on the KCC, the Kumbu Climbing Center. On a previous podcast back a few years ago, we talked about the Kumbu Climbing Center, but as one would expect, ever since that time, the pandemic basically closed the program down and nothing was going on for the past few years. But fortunately, they're able to open in January of this year, 2022. And I had the privilege to rejoin our friends in Fort St. Nepal, mainly from the Sherpa climbing community. And while attempting to take COVID precautions, we were still able to teach quite well. With a few of my colleagues, we were able to also teach medical skills as well as some technical climbing skills. But of course, the most important thing was to really rekindle our friendship that we could basically bolster and to meet new friends at 13,000 feet. Okay. And accompanying me was our UNM Wilderness Medicine Fellow, Dr. Emily Wheelis, as well as Dr. Hank Song from USC, who will be next year's Wilderness Medicine Fellow at the University of Utah, who gave great feedback during one of our debriefs. One of the groups asked without prompting, has this ever happened before? And the answer was yes. Because um, remember, if you know your patient's history, it can help. With HAPE, um, you're more likely to get it again if you've had it before. You should still check everything, because sometimes it hurts so much that they don't realize that, oh, they have bleeding from here, they have a back fracture or, or another injury. So it's good to just check everything. But we were also in for a nice surprise when we got to Fort Say. There was a group of 10 black climbers that joined us at the Kumbu Climbing Center. They call themselves the Full Circle Everest Expedition, and their goal is to make history by becoming the first all-black team to summit Everest in the spring of 2022. This team is led by Phil Henderson, who has been with the Kumbu Climbing Center since 2006 and has been a very instrumental presence with regard to mentorship, not only of the Sherpas, but also this group of men and women from all over the United States and Kenya. They came to the Climbing Center in January for a few days to train and just check out the Kumbu Climbing Center for themselves. One of the climbers from Kenya, KG, well, he's a mountain guide, and he is a very influential teacher for Knowles over in Kenya. He got to teach with us during the medical course, and he was definitely full of great ideas. Unfortunately, he couldn't always train with us since he was also very busy training with his own team. I also got to do a hike with one of the other members, Dom Mullins, up to the Gokyo region. And I have to say, he's amazing in the mountains. He brings an awareness to the black community that, yes, they can and should participate in mountain activities. And I didn't realize this, but about 9% of the outdoor community are black and only 1% are climbers. And of the 10 black climbers of the over 10,000 
who have attempted or gone up to Everest, only a female black climber has summited. A lot of this could be changed with good role modeling and mentorship. Dom, who taught you about the outdoors in Brooklyn? There was absolutely no one that I knew in my community that even hiked or camped outside. If you don't have people who, are, who live within proximity to you that you can learn certain things from, then you don't learn those things. So you were deployed in Iraq, and it sounds like you've been climbing for over 10 years. You love the challenge. Well, how does combat training, your previous life, and climbing tie in? It was a part of my identity. To be able to meet an obstacle, to be able to discipline myself enough to overcome it, and then achieve that thing gave me pride in myself. And so climbing became an, another vehicle in my life for that, that same process. And did you know any other black climbers when you started out climbing? Actually, I knew none. In fact, the only black climbers that I've ever been with in the mountains are all on the full circle Everest mountaineering team, yeah. You know, lots of people would remark when they would see me in the mountains, like, wow, I've never seen a black per person climbing before. I've never seen a black person in the mountains. Seriously? Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, because these guys were so busy, I didn't get, to, didn't get to record a conversation with Phil Henderson either, who's really the kingpin of all this. But from talking to him, his ideas seem to be really spot on. First of all, these climbers are interconnected. They've known each other through one another or through a common link, such as Conrad Anker, who Phil knew since 2006. Phil became very committed to teaching climbing skills to the Sherpa community, to the KCC on the invitation by Conrad. And Conrad would end up inviting Phil on an Everest expedition in 2012. And though Phil didn't end up summiting, it seemed like he actually saw a wonderful mentoring opportunity. He was given the opportunity to join in this expedition. And over the ensuing years, his desire wasn't really to go back to Everest and summit it and make a big name for himself. No, that's something he didn't feel like he needed to do. He would have been content climbing other mountains, which he's done. But I think he sees the opportunity to be able to have a special group that he could provide a special opportunity to, to participate in a very historic event and mentor these individuals who would go out and mentor their respective communities to get involved in the outdoors. And that's why I believe they call themselves the Full Circle Everest Expedition. So I invite you to keep up with their progress. And if you're willing to, even pitch in supporting them financially. Google them, you'll find Thanks for listening to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is a production of Elsevier 2022. Be sure to fill out the CME questions, be safe, be educated, and get outside. Contact us for further questions. And until next time. Mm -hmm.